Hello and welcome to the student box. This is your classics group. I'm Jacob and I take Latin, maths, further maths and physics. And I'm James. I take ancient history, maths, further maths and physics. Like us today, and like people throughout all civilizations in history, the Romans needed their entertainment, whether it's for rich people promoting political goals, or for the mob, the people who wanted just to let themselves be entertained. They had various forms of entertainment that they all enjoyed. If I were to ask any man on the street what the Romans did to entertain themselves, no doubt he would say gladiator fights. And in many ways, that is true. The games in Rome itself were insanely popular. And we can, we can see this just by looking at the buildings. I mean, everyone has heard of the Colosseum, the amphitheater that could hold 80,000 spectators in it. What's interesting about the gladiator fights is their origins. They started as a funeral ritual for the Etruscans, who were a people who lived in Italy near the Romans. And as the Romans expanded outwards, they saw this ritual that the Etruscans had of having people fight each other for, um, as a spectator sport, and they decided to adopt it and make it their own. That's a very Roman way of doing things. They always liked to, um, to take things from somewhere else and make it bigger, better, and more spectacular. And, I mean, they definitely did make it more spectacular. Um, there's, there's stories uh, that the ancient authors tell of uh, animal hunts involving elephants and lions and tigers and just massive scale battles held in the arena just for the entertainment of the masses provided by the emperor or in the republican era by a prominent politician. That's an interesting point because although we think of gladiator fighting as being two armoured men going at each other the day was actually split up into three main parts. In the morning, they would have fighters called bestiarii, fighting animals and hunting them down, maybe exotic ones to show off how rich and how powerful the Roman Empire was. In the middle of the day, they would execute slaves for fun and for entertainment, which is something that continued until very recently, actually. It was even up until Victorian times, public executions would be a fun day trip out for the kids. However, and the public fine... executions uh, in, in the Victorian era weren't exactly at the same calibre, should we say, mm. as, as the Roman executions. How so? I mean, well, for the Victorians, you went and saw someone get hung, which was very anticlimactic as a way to execute someone. Whereas the Romans did it with a bit more panache. They, uh, they tied people to stakes and let the, the hungry tigers eat them or they dressed them up in the armour of, say, the Carthaginians and staged a mock battle between these un uh, untrained, poorly armoured um, prisoners and the well-trained and well-armoured gladiators, which always ended in a, in a victory for the Romans. And finally, in the afternoon or the end of the day, they would have what we'll think of as proper gladiator fights. Uh, the, the cool thing about gladiator fights is that they had a very 
they, they like to play two very different types of people against each other. You normally have a much heavily armoured gladiator facing off against a really quick gladiator in a, in a test of strength versus speed to see who would, who would come out on top. Mm. It's because if you just pitch two people against each other who have exactly the same strengths and weaknesses, it doesn't make an interesting fight because they'll just do the same things to each other. If you have someone with a net and a trident against someone with heavy armour and a great big sword, you'll get such interesting spectacles with the fights because they have to use such innovative tactics to fight each other. And also, um, in order to stop people getting bored, because if you just had one fight... Uh, in the arena, uh, and it was just going on and on and on. They would have a um, a judge there to make sure that the fight continued fairly, and also um, they ended well. Because as a gladiator, you could you could submit uh, defeat. You could raise a I think it was raising a thumb at any point, and the um, the judge would step in and award the fight to the the victorious gladiator. Of course, we always think of gladiator fights as ending in death, but that wasn't exactly the case, was it? Uh, well, I mean, think about how much money it costs to train a soldier, and then think about it instead as a, as a gladiator. It would be the same amount of money. They were trained from a really young age, and they were very, very expensive and prized. I mean, an, an owner could make a lot of money off of a gladiator. They could... Well, firstly, they would put them in the arena and, and have them fight, but that was only a small part of the money you could get. You could sell all parts of their, their sweats and other, other, other things related to that gladiator for a huge, huge markup, really, thing if you get it for free. And then my favourite thing is, is um, high-born women would often pay for a, for a night with one of these gladiators. <laughs> they were just their celebrities of the time. There was one famous piece of graffiti in Pompeii that refers to a certain gladiator as a heartthrob of the ladies because they did get so popular. And of uh, course, I mean, in Pompeii, they had their own amphitheatre. Games weren't only hosted at the Colosseum in Rome, but they were done all around the empire. Yeah, we've got a lot of amphitheatres. Um, we've got a couple. We've, we've found a couple in Britain. Uh, all, yeah, all across the empire, really. But the, the the funny thing about the Pompeian one is that for 10 years before the eruption, there weren't any games hosted there. Yeah. Yes, and that was because Pompeii uh, had a neighbouring town that didn't have their own amphitheatre, so they would come to the Pompeian one. But at one point, there was such an enormous riot between the two towns that the emperor decreed that for 10 years, they weren't allowed to have any games because it was too dangerous to risk the two towns fighting each other again. Which is quite ironic, seeing as they fought over a gladiator fight. <laughs> and of course, if we think that the Colosseum and its capacity of 80,000 people was big, that's absolutely nothing in comparison to the Circus Maximus, yeah, the main the... stadium of the chariot races, which could hold a quarter of a million spectators, which was a quarter of the entire city of Rome. That's how popular it was. We, we tend to think as, as gladiator fights the most popular form of entertainment in, in the ancient world, but it was not by any stretch of the imagination uh, compared to the um, 
chariot races? Chariot races held an incredibly important place in Roman consciousness because they were games for absolutely everybody because so many people could fit in the stadium and they all had their favourite teams like we did. They had red, blue, green and white teams and often there might be riots. Lots of authors at the time wrote about the races, one called Juvenal says that you could tell whether the green team had won or lost because uh, the poor people would either be shouting with happiness or rioting in despair. Or the very famous poet Ovid talks about going to the chariot races as a good time to pick up Roman women because they're all inflamed with passion at their favourite charioteers. However, isn't there also um, a letter written by one of the ancient authors which just... It's about oh, him yeah. despising the races with every fibre of his being. Pliny the Younger, who was an important government official under uh, the Emperor Trajan, I think, um, despised the races. He thought that they were terrible entertainment for the masses, designed only to please the mob so they don't riot against the government. And he said it was phenomenally stupid how they would just dedicate themselves to one particular team, because that way they're not even admiring the skill of the charioteers, but only the colour of that person's tunic. And we can talk about the skill of the charioteers being quite impressive, because they were paid a lot. These were professional athletes that were well regarded. Uh, well, they they were they were the celebrities of their day, but they the, the interesting part is they were considered lesser than normal people, and yet they were still idolised by many. Mm. Plenty of entertainers, actors, gladiators, charioteers were slaves or infamy, which was a Roman word that meant the lowest of the low, right down there with the likes of prostitutes, because it was just such an, a disrespectable job for a member of society. Uh, and then you have the Emperor Nero, who is... Who, who cannot ever be considered infamy as the highest position in Roman society. And yet he was an avid fan of the, uh, the, the chariot racing. Um, it, when he was young, Suetonius states that his chatter about the chariot races could not be stopped. Um, and he made an effort to go to every single race. And so he would rarely ever leave Rome. And if he did, it would only be for a short span of a couple of days while there were no chariot races being held. He even complained about there not being enough chariot races to fill every day for the entire length of the day. Which, it's, it's not entirely practical for anyone except the emperor to sit there for that long listening to, well, watching mm. the, the chariot races. This is one reason why the Emperor Nero was so detested by the higher classes of society, the senatorial class, it's because he always fraternised with people like charioteers who were considered so far below what respectable people were. He did more than fraternise, though. He was he was a charioteer at one point. Mm. He, he raced a ten-horse chariot, uh, which was just about the largest amount of horses you could fit on one chariot. Uh, around the Circus Maximus, and instead of having a prominent politician as the starting official, um, because each of the races would be started by uh, the person who'd paid for them, 
dropping his handkerchief. Um, and then the gates was open and the horse was not running. But the person who started his race was one of his uh, freedmen, one of his one of the slaves who um, he'd freed and then took to running the bureaucracy. So it's he he really took the races to be part of his um, identity. But Jacob, how how did the races actually work? What what did a race involve? So the Circus Maximus and other chariot racing stadia would be two very long stretches next parallel to each other and then two very tight corners on the end. The chariot race the chariots would have a staggered start so that it was fair to do with whether they started on the inside or the outside. And the goal would be to overtake and then take the corner as close as they could, but because they were so tight, it was ridiculously dangerous. Lots of them fell off or got crushed under the feet of horses or the wheels of chariots. It was an incredibly dangerous sport. And they would go around this track usually seven times. And then the first one to get through or of the lot who managed to survive without being thrown off the chariots or trampled or having their chariots destroyed would be the winner. Uh, my favourite thing about um, the Circus Maximus in particular is the way they liked to count off the number of laps that they'd raced. Um, I think originally they had um, like golden eggs, which they would place onto a pedestal for every lap that had passed. But then it moved on to like an ornate dolphin structure mm. that they would tip over every time a, um, a lap was completed. And in fact, the the spina of the gladi- uh, of the uh, Circus Maximus, uh, which was the bit, the dividing line between the two straights, that was really ornately decorated. They had obelisks from Egypt there, because it was such a, a good place to display the wealth of Rome. Because every citizen would come and watch a race at mm. some point. That's something that's interesting to talk about. Races or gladiator games as well. They would be used to show off wealth or show off power and that's why uh, senators in if we're talking about the roman republic would often put on games or sporting events or shows in order to impress the people impress them with their wealth and impress them with how much they love the people and because they're willing to spend all of this money on games and later on the emperor would do the same thing if public opinion was turning against him he might put on some games and let the people be entertained and give them holidays because that was such an effective way of winning over favour. And, and that was the purpose of the official dropping the handkerchief at the start of the race as well. Because if you were putting on games, it was a big expense and you wanted you it wanted to be visible that it was your games and you'd done this. So they liked to um, they liked to be the one to drop the handkerchief to demonstrate that they are the, the the one who everyone owes this great entertainment to. Of course, maybe, now we've talked about Nero, he wasn't the only emperor who enjoyed things like this. The emperor Caligula was a big fan of the games. He was a massive supporter of the green team and enforced a curfew over the city of Rome on days before races so that the horses of the green team would have a good night's sleep so they could win. And there was a rumour that he was thinking of making one of the horses a consul, which was like one of the prime ministers of Rome, very important public office. And of course, the emperor Commodus was also 
involved in games like this, wasn't he? Uh, yes, Commodus um, was well known for betraying himself as Hercules. He didn't take part in the chariot races, but he did take part in the gladiatorial games. Um, he was very successful in the arena, which is hardly surprising, because if anyone did end up killing him, they would be killed and put to torture for killing the emperor. So it happened that he won every single bout by a significant margin. Mm. Of course, by all accounts, he was decent, but you can't expect the emperor ever to lose a game like this. No. However, one case that the um, the emperor did lose uh, in, in relation to the chariot races, uh, although this is technically outside of the scope of classics, is um, during the Byzantine emperor, where there was uh, such a thing as the Nika riots, which were a uh, which was a large public uprising against the emperor Justinian, fueled by his um, suppression of the influence of the chariot racing teams. I mean, in the Byzantine Empire, everyone loved the chariot racing so much that if you were part of the, the green team, it wasn't just to support the team, you were in a political faction. That The political factions like we have today, conservatives and, and labor, that wasn't, that wasn't the team that you were part of. You were part of the green team or the blue team. Um, and so Justinian felt threatened by this because, um, well, the, the, the power doesn't rest with him. It doesn't the rest of the political faction. It rests with the race, which is highly unstable because if one side loses, then, well, it, it's going to be a bit unstable. So he tries to suppress the power of the, these uh, teams. But what he ends up doing instead is uniting them, which is a bit like... Um, uh, Luton football fans and Watford football fans suddenly uniting to overthrow three <laughs> rivers council. It's, it's a bit ridiculous, but um, somehow they just they managed to do it, and this ended up burning down half the city, and thirty thousand people were left dead because of a riot over some chariot races. And whilst chariot racing might be a little familiar to us since it's lived on in forms like formula one or perhaps more accurately nascar with all of the high-speed turning and danger of you know death even one uh, form of roman entertainment that has definitely lived on to the modern day is theater um yes and this is when we can go back to the emperor nero um <laughs> he considered himself to be the premier performer of his day um, his last words even were what a performer dies with me which is a bit egotistical but then again he did win every single prize he, uh, prize at every competition he ever won uh, entered even um, once again it had nothing to do with his position as emperor it was simply that he was such a good singer and lyre player and performer that um, well yeah he definitely deserved those prizes mm. Now, we don't know too much about Roman theatre because not a lot of it survives, but we do know that the two main genres, like in the Greek theatre that inspired it, were tragedy and comedy. Very little Roman tragedy has survived, especially from early Rome, but we do have works by people like Seneca, and a lot of the time they were adaptations of Greek plays because Greek theatre was so good, and the Romans appreciated that and they thought these stories are just so brilliant we might as well adapt them into our language our culture and they did weren't that the particularly with tragedy mm -hmm. weren't the majority of performances though just 
they were just the same play which has played over and over again on repeat because they felt that they couldn't write anything better than yeah. what already existed which to me just sounds a bit boring because you, you you remember as a child going to see this one play and then you see it again and again and again and again and again and even worse than that they would have actors come in to their dinner parties and perform scenes from these plays you couldn't really escape them it was everywhere that's why if you look at say the works by senator a lot a seneca a lot of them are uh, just adaptations direct adaptations of greek plays like dear oedipus the trojan women because you just can't do better than that but the romans also had quite a thriving comedy scene particularly the famous playwrights of plautus and terence and sometimes they would also adapt greek plays but they would also be more likely to romanize them and they'd have this role reversal maybe clever slaves and stupid masters but strangely for the romans whom we think of as being warlike and serious they would have lots of dirty jokes and slapstick humor and it's all a bit childish because i suppose everybody needs to cut loose every so often and enjoy something stupid i, I particularly like roman theater because of the backdrops they had um it's it's hard to imagine the backdrops nowadays but every single major city in the roman empire had a theater pompeii had two one indoors and one outdoors um and they would all have these really elaborate backdrops that looked like a a street with multiple windows with floors that actors could come onto um it's quite quite amazing but it's also really different to our uh, current way of doing like backdrops to theaters because we, we can't no, we we can uh, have like specifically painted backdrops to show a forest or something. They didn't really have the the the, the technology to to have that kind of quick changeover sort of backdrops. So they just stuck with the same one over and over again. But they did mm. have a curtain. They had a curtain um, that instead of coming in from the sides, it was right at the front, and it would drop down at the start of the play to reveal the actors. Yeah, because it came up from the floor and they could drop it under the stage and that would reveal the stage and the backdrop and the actors. And Quite of course, genius. we talk about comedy and tragedy, but there were two more important forms of ancient Roman theatre. And those were mime and pantomime. But those were nothing like what we think of those words meaning now in a modern context. Pantomime to me, um, as a modern, modern, uh, modern person, seems to be... A lot of uh, slapstick, people dressed up in silly costumes, making very, very silly jokes on stage. But Roman pantomime was, in my view, just quite simply the dullest thing that could ever exist. <laughs> it was one person on the stage accompanied by music. They did not speak, but instead they acted out an entire, perform uh, an entire scene from a play by themselves, through interpretive dance. It's nice. It's like a ballet. It's artistic. It's calming. It's someone taking on all of the roles and expressing everything just through movement without any words. 
I, I, I still couldn't see myself paying. Well, didn't mm. people pay for the tickets? Um, didn't they, because they were put on by a, an official, the tickets were given out to people who could then sell them between each other, but they didn't actually pay uh, for the ticket. So I'd probably sell my mm. ticket on if it was for a, for a pantomime. Yes. So, uh, we've had a lot of talk about gladiators, which are quite unfamiliar to us in modern times, but they were very famous as a Roman idea. Chariot races, with which we can sort of identify, and theatre, which is largely very similar to us now as it is in Roman times. But the Romans also employed a form of entertainment that's just very alien to us, because we'd never do it nowadays, and that's public business and the law. We, we, we know a lot about uh, the Roman law system because uh, a lot of it has been recorded. Uh, in fact, most of modern law nowadays is, is based on Roman law. But the, the key difference with our law courts is that they're held in private behind closed doors that people can go and watch, but they're not, say, held in the mig- middle of Trafalgar Square with one person strutting around on a platform uh, entertaining people with his, his witty remarks. Whereas that was the entire point of Roman law. They were The, the law courts were held in the forum. Uh, popular lawyers, famous lawyers would come. They would argue their case to a jury made up of senators and the populace would come and watch. Lots of people would have their favourite orator and follow him around and watch all of his speeches like groupies to a modern band. But it's just so strange to think of going and watching a court case as a form of entertainment. But the way Roman speeches were done were they were they were passionate, they were spoken loudly for the benefit of the people watching as much as the court. They were pieces of performance art, like public speaking, like a monologue or soliloquy in a Shakespeare play, as much as they were designed to get someone acquitted. They had to be enjoyable to listen to, and they had to be brilliantly written, rhetorically excellent, brilliantly performed, because otherwise people would get bored, they'd stop listening, and there would be no interest in the case. And if there's no interest in the case, you're never going to drum up enough popular support to make your issues seem important to the people. They have to like you for you to be a good politician. That, that led each, um, each of the most popular lawyers of their day to develop their own kind of style. Uh, I think the, the most, the, the height of this form of entertainment was really um, in the middle of the first century BC when um, Cicero and Hortensius went against each other. Um, Hortensius was known as the dancing master because he would have these really big flourishes with his hands as he would strut across the uh, platform, waving his hands and generally just being really enigmatic and illustrative with his movements. Whereas Cicero was the opposite of that. He would stay quite still and just use the inflections of his, of his voice to, um, to make his point. And if he ever did make uh, such a movement as Hortensius like to do constantly, it had a lot more effect because it was so rare for him to do that. So that was, th- th- those were two very different styles and people liked to come and watch them perform, uh, well, watch them 
do battle in the court because they were the masters mm. of, of their arts. It's worth talking about Cicero because he's quite possibly the most famous lawyer of all time and arguably the best orator in history because we can still look at his speeches nowadays and think, wow, that's brilliant. The way he's organised his words to make his point, his choice of vocabulary, it's all so precise. It's like a well-oiled machine, clockwork, the way his speech is designed to sound good, to make an impression and to argue his case brilliantly, particularly his most famous set of speeches, the Philippics, which were these damning speeches against Mark Antony, whom he thought was taking on too much power in Rome and might become a dangerous dictator. So he launched these tirades against him in the Senate to destroy his reputation. And they're some of the most brilliant pieces of speech work in history. The, 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 I, I enjoy them for a, for a much simpler reason. Just the ingenuity in the insults. I mean, <laughs> you, you, you read them in your Latin lessons, Jake. It was related... There are, mm. there are a number of different words to mean the same kind of thing, but he uses them all so differently. Um, I also enjoy um, his attack on, I think it's Catullus, who was a rival of his. And he specifically went after everyone in Catullus's family accusing him of all manner of heinous things that would be scandalous in Roman society. Uh, it's just enjoyable that some orator can have such a profound effect on the reputation of someone just through their, their speech. Mm. And I think there, of course, we haven't managed to cover every single form of Roman entertainment because for the Romans... <laughs> what they enjoyed was as varied as what we enjoy nowadays. It's like trying to cover the entirety of what we as a modern people like to do. But we've covered some of the main forms, and a lot of these have continued throughout history, so they're very important for putting things in context and seeing why we might enjoy a sport like Formula One. And you can look back and see, well, it clearly follows from the ancient sport of chariot racing, which is very similar. So, of course, if you're interested in, in any of these, what's there in my not all be not all be not all be particularly be particularly be particularly particularly accurately 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 accurate. We can still enjoy the dramatized to make the film seem better. Yeah, just because they're inaccurate doesn't make them bad, but it does make them bad as a historical source. Well, that's it for today's episode, then. Thank you for listening. Um, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>